Well, as we, as we saw those men make professions of faith, as we sat with the believers in Tokal, the same question was asked over and over. What do we do? What do we do now? What am I, what am I supposed to do? And the thing is, it's not the first time we've heard this question. Every time that we've seen someone come to faith, every time that someone has, has in these villages has come to faith and said, I want to follow Jesus, they say, what now? It's not a new question, though. This question has been being asked since really since Peter stood on Pentecost morning and, and preached that first gospel message. And 3,000 believers came and, and said, they were, it, it says they were cut to the heart. And they looked at Peter and they said, what do we do now? He told them, you killed the Messiah. This Jesus, whom you crucified, has been made Lord in Christ. What do we do now? It's interesting. Every time I've seen this happen, I, I, I sit back and I, I just watch. We don't know what to tell them. What do you do now? You're a believer in Jesus. What do you do now? Can you, can you tell somebody what to do now? Well, you believe. That's just believe. Believe. Now, I think in part, I mean, I, I, to be fair, I think it's in part because, you know, in the American church, we, we're, we're children of the Reformation and we come out of this out of this fight for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. But I think in part, it's really driven because in the American church, at least, we love our freedom. See, we don't really want to tell other people what to do because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anybody telling us that there's a right way to live. Christian, there is things that you can do that are wrong. There are things that you can do that dishonor God. You can still sin. And it grieves the Spirit. You see, but if we begin to, to proclaim that message that now as believers we can't just go living willy-nilly doing whatever we want, then we have to begin acting like it ourselves. Let me let you in on a little secret. It's exactly what Paul's calling us to in Ephesians. Think about this letter where He proclaimed the beauty and the power and the majesty of God's work through Jesus Christ to save you, a wretched sinner. To call you, no longer call you sinner, but call you saint. The work He did to call you His child. Nothing on your part, nothing on your behalf makes you worthy of this. Nothing you can do earns you a place before Him. Nothing. Oh, and He proclaimed it clearly, didn't He? Before the foundation of the world, He predestined you. He chose you. He adopted you. You were dead in your transgression. You were distant. He brought you close. He forgave your sin. He redeemed you. He saved you. He adopted you. 
Paul didn't quit writing when he got done with that message, did he? This whole second half is the what now. You believe in Jesus? What now? What now? We've, we've, we've been dealing with it for several weeks. We're going to continue to deal with it through the end of the letter. There's four major themes that, that are, are dealt with. Unity, we went through that, the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Purity, that's what we've been studying the last several weeks. Harmony is coming. We'll get to that when we deal with Christian families, Christian marriages, and Christian um, employment and employers. We'll deal with victory when we get to the spiritual armor. What now? You don't have to wonder anymore. We don't have to stumble at this answer anymore. We don't have to question it. We can see it. Paul tells us what now. So if you will, just read with me. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but I think we're going to read what is a central and and, uh, major piece of this theme of what now. As we read from Ephesians 5, chapter 1, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. What now? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sin, the sons of disobedience. What we see in this passage is that the great reality of the Christian life is that God's image is being restored in us. His image, His reflection, His, uh, His character, He is being made visible in us. You and I and all of humanity was created in His image. Now, theologians are going to argue over in the fall whether it was completely destroyed or just marred, or I'm of the opinion that it was marred, but it was so heavily marred that it's just nearly indistinguishable. That we can't see God in the world because they're so wrapped up in themselves. But many of his, his communicable traits are still there. They still love their children. They still, they still, uh, think and reason. There's still many of those communicable attributes clearly there. But sin has severely marred that image. And now the work of God through Jesus Christ by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit is restoring that image as He purifies us. As He removes the flesh and the sin of the world and and, and makes Himself, polishes us, if you will, that we might shine and that we might reflect His image. As He is making us new, though, Paul is calling us. Paul is, a stronger word, commanding us to live like it. To put into action the work that God is doing. To apply it to our lives that it might become obvious to those around us. He, Paul is describing what it looks like in practice. He's, he's telling us. He's, he's given us instructions. 
He tells us to put off the old, to put away that stuff that was part of your old life, to, to no longer act like the Gentiles do, to, to no longer be the way you were before you were a believer, no longer be the way you were before God saved you, and to put on the new, to apply those new things that God is doing in you, to, to put into action the things that He is changing about you, to let people see the work that He is doing in you. Put off the old, put away the old, put on the new, live in this new lifestyle. And he comes to this central theme. Be imitators of God. I, I hadn't thought about this till just this moment, but I think it's important that we stop and just take a second. How many of us are striving for that in day-to-day life? How many of you are going to wake up in the morning and think, when I go into the world today, I'm going to imitate God? Maybe you've never put it in those words before, but now you've been given a vocabulary. But how many of us, that's the approach. That's exactly what Paul is calling us to. That as we step into the world, as we, as, as we work together, as we f- uh, fellowship together, as we spend time together, as we love on one another, as we live in our neighborhoods, as we go to our places of business, as we, as we function and live in this world, that we imitate Him. You see, because God is characterized by truth and grace, we should be characterized by truth and grace. That was the first lesson out of this purity section. We should be characterized by truth and grace because God is, is, is demonstrated through Jesus that He is characterized by forgiveness and love. We should be characterized by forgiveness and love. He tells us, forgive as you've been forgiven. That's big. He says, love as you've been loved. It's huge. But that should characterize our lives. It should be the the mark of who we are because God is intentional and purposeful about what He does. We too should be intentional and purposeful. It's not that we should be inflexible. For too many years, I've spent my life just whatever comes, comes, whatever. God is intentional and He is purposeful and He has called us to be like that. If we're so tied to our plan, though, that we lose sight of the power of the Spirit, we've gone too far the other direction. He says we should exercise wisdom, His wisdom, because He is the source of wisdom. He says we should exercise wisdom in our lives. He says, I'm of the light, you should be of the light. And today, as as we kind of step into the middle of this whole section on purity, and I, I call it to a close... As we study these verses, he's not just calling us to sexual purity or a lack of of desire. He's calling us to purity in every dimension of our lives so that his image, so that he is able to be seen in us. See, God is holy. And because God is holy, we are to be holy. We, we evangelize and we tell people it's, a, it's really a mistake. We tell people if, if you'll just trust in Jesus, you'll be all better. You'll have all the answers. Life will be so easy. You'll, you'll be happy. How's that working? Still a struggle. Still have to wake up. Still have to deal with people that are difficult. 
Still have to deal with circumstances that are beyond my control. Still have to walk in, in, in ways that, that I don't always appreciate. Don't always feel happy. In fact, as I've come back this week, it's been one of the worst recoveries from a mission trip I've ever had. I have been in a funk. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. It's been difficult. God didn't save us to make us happy. God saved us to make us holy. Let me say that again. God didn't save you to make you happy. God saved you to make you holy. In fact, in this passage, that's what he says. He says, this is not to be mentioned among the saints. He's calling us the holy ones of God. That's what saints is. That's what it means in the, in the original language. It's the same word that we translate holy in other areas, but it's a title that's applied to us. He saved you to make you distinct and different than everyone else in the world. He saved you to bring you into His family. He saved you to separate you from the world unto Himself. He saved you to make you His own. And because He is holy now, you are to be holy. This is one of the clearest lessons I think I ever learned from Dr. Marshall at Second Baptist before we planted the, ch- planted the church. He used to say, holiness matters most. And I'll never forget it. I think the reason it's so ingrained in me, I can remember one time sitting in the in, in this church, you know, there's about 1,500 or 2,000 people in the room, and he is he has us repeat it with him. So there's 1,500 or 2,000 people saying out, holiness matters most. Holiness matters most. And so in my mind, this is ingrained. And, and the truth of it, the Spirit is just, it's just drilling it down into my heart. The point that he always wanted to make was that as we pursue the holiness that God's given us, as we pursue to live in holiness, that's where we find the greatest sense of joy. You see, you'll ultimately be made happy as God makes you holy. The the things of this world, the satisfaction is temporary. Buy a new car. How long does that make you happy? Till the first time it's dirty. So the first payment has to be paid. Doesn't satisfy long, does it? Buy a house. Love our house. We have to maintain it. We have to take care of it. I'm telling you, it doesn't always make me happy. I wanted a newer house because I didn't want to have to maintain a bunch of stuff. That's not always worked. You see, these things that we can accumulate in this world, the things that we can hang on to in this life, they're not going to satisfy us. They're not going to make us happy. But as we pursue holiness, as we strive and push into the holiness that God has given us, as we live out this call to be holy, this command to be holy, that's where we'll find the joy and the satisfaction that we so desire. See, God didn't save you to be happy. He he saved you to be holy. And then through that will make you ultimately joyful. You'll find your peace. You'll find contentment. You'll find satisfaction. God's beloved children. This is expected of us. And we're expected to live holy because we have been made holy by the one who is holy. Now, I could stop there. And that's really the point of this whole sermon. I mean, in fact, I'm going to come back to that point here in just a minute. But Paul deals with three, three things in specific. He calls three things out specifically that have no room in Christian life. And I'm going to tell you, I wish, I wish I could tell you that, that I'm perfect in all three of these areas. 
But I struggle. And I recognize that you probably struggle too. And as we listen to them, as we look at them and understand what they mean, I don't want you just to feel the condemnation and feel me punching you in the stomach. But I hope as you receive that punch in the gut that you recognize that Jesus is your hope. Because He's calling us saints. We've been made holy. Now the call is to live holy. Because He is holy. And Paul calls out three things. First, he calls out sexual immorality and all impurity. He puts these two things together. And really, when you summarize it all, he's dealing with, 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 with adultery, fornication, sex outside of marriage. But he's dealing with more than that. He throws in all this impurity. That means every, every sinful sexual act that you could dream up. If you can think of it and it's outside of God's design or God's plan for, for sex, then it is sexually immoral and sexually impure. And I would define it, and I think it's on the screen behind me, any sexual act outside of God's intended purpose for sex. I want you to notice this, though. He's not saying that sex is bad. I, I was raised in a time, and I, and I don't know that anybody ever meant to tell me this, but where sex is considered dirty. And so that throws this whole other mix of problems on top of it because all of a sudden this thing is it's taboo and you're not supposed to do it. Well, that just makes you want it more. You know, that doesn't help anything. Well, if, if it's that bad, it must be a lot of fun. And so it didn't, didn't really help anything. But Paul is not calling sex bad. He's not saying that it's wrong to have sex, but he's saying that there's no room for sexual immorality and sexual impurity. So we have to understand. We have to understand what God's intended plan for it is. We have to understand what God designed it for, what its purpose is, where, where it belongs and where it doesn't. It's unfortunate that in our culture today, because of, of the topics that are in the news and what we hear about all, a lot, people are going to hear sexual immorality, and a lot of times they're just going to jump immediately to homosexuality, and everybody's going to be wanting to, oh, let's pick up signs and carry around and say homosexuality is terrible and we should just ban everybody, right? We just don't want them. But that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Paul Tripp in his book, Sex, Sex and Money, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies, says this. I am deeply persuaded that when it comes to sex and money, we've gone culturally insane. The delusion of self-deception and self-destruction that accompany the ways we approach these areas is simply crazy. He's a smarter man than I am. He's, he actually is trained a counselor. He, he, he deals with this kind of stuff all the time. I would highly recommend this book if, if this is an area where, where uh, you need to grow to understand the struggle. But the point is, is that we have become so accustomed to sexual immorality and impurity, we don't even recognize it anymore. Well, we, we've, we've categorized it. We've set it up in such a way that, that we define things differently. This isn't sex, even though it's clearly sexual. This isn't an act of sex. We even approve it in our leaders when they tell us, I didn't have sex with that woman. And our country gets behind them and makes it out to be okay. Uh, he didn't really have sex. We're deluded. We're deceived. Paul's point in Ephesians is that there's not even room for just a hint. It simply means if, if I took some if I took some rat poo and put it in brownies, even if it was just a little bit, 
Would you want it? There's not room for any. It ruins us. There's not room for it at all. And we have to understand what it is. And so Chris, you know, Chris makes comments about we make him talk about money. Be glad I didn't make you talk about sex. Sexual immorality is homosexuality. But it's way more than that. Heterosexual sex outside of marriage, masturbation, pornography, making out with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And I'm talking just kissing to the point that you are sexually aroused and maybe even before that, sinful, immoral. Oral sex, hand jobs outside of marriage, covenant, that's all just as sinful and and immoral as homosexuality. And we have built a pedestal and said homosexuality is the worst. It is immoral, but no more immoral than you unmarried people sleeping with those that you're not married to. Or you, husbands, sleeping with people who aren't your wives. Or wives, sleeping with men who aren't your husbands. Or looking at a computer screen and touching yourself. That is immoral. And there is no room for it. There's not to even be a hint of it, he says. But marriage is not the answer either. It doesn't end the struggle against sexual immorality. In our sick and twisted sense of sexuality, it's not satisfied with what's pleasing and honorable before God. And so we look beyond our marriage covenants for satisfaction. In Fox News magazine back in 2012, they had done a study and they stated that approximately 70 percent. It was like 20 years before it was 50 percent. In 2012, 70 percent of men admit to extramarital Affairs. You realize what that means? If statistics hold true, there's men in this room that that applies to. It's pretty disheartening. Ladies, they're not alone. 50 to 60% of women admitted to the same thing. We live in a sex-crazed world, saturated with sexual imagery. Paul says we need to rid ourselves of it. We need to be done with it. Just beyond the obvious, just beyond the obvious, cheating on husbands and wives and being an infidelity inside of marriage, there's way more ways to be immoral inside of marriage with sex. Men, if you've ever made your wife feel guilty because she's not having sex with you enough, you're using it for a purpose God did not intend. It's immoral. If you've gotten angry with her and belittled her because she doesn't have the drive that you have, you're not loving her the way Christ loved the church. That is immorality. And it is not, there's not room for it in your marriage. Ladies, If you have ever used sex to get your way with your husband, that is immoral. That is sexual immorality. It's using it for a purpose that God did not intend. There's no room for it in your marriage. And for those of you that are single, 
If somebody is telling you that they love you and that they want to show you they love you by having sex with you, they are not loving you, they are using you. It is sexual immorality and there is no room for it in the church. Ladies, if you have a boyfriend who tells you that they love you and they want want you and that's the way they want to do it, wake up. Don't fall to the deception. They don't love you. They're using you. Don't let it happen. There's not room for it in the church. Men, you grab hold of yourselves and you control yourself. You've been given the Spirit of God. There is no room for sexual immorality in the church. But it goes beyond just what we do, doesn't it? I mean, if the words of Christ have any bearing here, which I think they probably do, He says, if you have lusted after someone in your heart, you have already committed adultery. I'm imagining that 100% of us right now should be feeling the conviction that comes from our sin. Men and women run around half naked, flashing their bodies. Sex sells. Paul says, no No, no. There is no room for this in the church. There shouldn't even be a hint of it among God's people. We are guilty. Covetousness. He comes to this point, and you know, typically in dealing with covetousness, you think of the desires for things that you want. But he specifically calls this idolatry. And I think he gives us the clear picture that this is a greater desire for created things than your desire for your Creator. What do you desire more than God? What do you desire more than God's honor? What do you desire more than an intimate relationship with Him? Before you say nothing, before you sit in this room, in this, 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 this room in which we are sanctified and we put on our Sunday best and we, we try to cover up all our issues, before you sit there and say nothing, let me ask you to think about how you earn, spend, and save your money. What you do with money will reveal what you covet in your heart. Jesus spoke about money more than anyone else. I used to be afraid to speak about money because I didn't want to make somebody mad. But I've learned to love you past being liked by you. I want to be liked by you still. Don't get me wrong. You look at your checkbook. Look at your, well, maybe you don't even use checkbooks anymore. That dates me. Look at your bank statements, your electronic bank statement. Flip open your, your smartphone and, and, and scroll through your expenditures. How many of them are made with God's honor, with God's mission, with God's plans and purposes in mind? See, what you do with your money reveals what you covet with your heart. And I'm afraid in the American church, we are deceived. Now, maybe you've got your money figured out. What about your time? So one resource we can't replenish. We all get the same amount of it. 
And I'm not talking about your time when people are watching. You know, people expect me to be righteous and holy when I'm up here preaching. You think I'm going to come up here and I'm just going to be a, an idiot? I'm talking about what are you doing when nobody's watching? When you think you're alone? What you do with your time reveals what you desire most. And be careful. Because as you turn and as you have this list of noble things you do, don't be deceived. Noble actions compelled by selfish motives reveal idolatry in our hearts. If I come to you and preach the, the most profound and greatest message I've ever preached, but I am not doing it out of a love and honor for God and a love and honor for His people, Paul calls me a clanging symbol. If I only am here because I want you to like me and I want your approval and I want your acceptance and, and I want myself to be, to be made a, a name of, then I am doing it with a selfish motive and an idolatrous heart. No matter how noble your cause, if you are the center of that cause, you're an idolater. You're covetous. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul says there's no room. Shouldn't even be a hint. Shouldn't even be a hint. And then he comes to obscene speech or crude joking. And I'm going to tell you, over the last several months and weeks as I've studied this and prepared for these messages, I'm going to tell you this is the place where I sense the greatest conviction in my own life. <clears throat> and I'm apologizing to you this morning. Because I have not always set a good example. You see, when Paul says this, when he says these things, when he's talking about obscene speech and crude joking, it'd be nice if he gave us this list of words we just couldn't say. Right? Okay, there's the list. We know it. Now we just know, okay, I'll stay away from this list. And as long as I don't say these, these certain words, then I won't be speaking obscenely. Boy, the way he's tied this all together with sex and covetousness, he is he's hitting he's hitting deeper. See what I think he's talking about, what I think this would be defined as is speaking in ways and laughing at speech that dishonors God. <clears throat> Tim Keller, as he as he dealt with this passage, he points out that we not only have to watch what we say, but as Christians we have to examine our humor. We have to watch what we laugh at. And I'm going to apologize to you because I have made crude and crash jokes and hoped you laughed. I'm sorry. I have watched things and laughed at things that are adulterous, sinful. I'm sorry. And I have encouraged you to watch those things and, and so that we can talk about them and laugh about them together. I'm sorry. Paul says there's no room for this. No room for this in the Christian life. See, we pump it in our houses, though. We sit in front of our televisions and we watch these shows and we laugh at these things. 
I wonder if we recognize that Jesus was sitting with us, if we'd still be laughing. Approving of adulterous relationships, laughing at sexual innuendo. Not even a hint. No room for it. We spend our money to go be entertained and made to feel good by things that dishonor God. Everywhere you go, every moment of your day, every second that you're that you're on this earth, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And when you enter into these things, you are asking Him to come with you. There is a right and wrong for us. Paul says there's no room. No room. Why, why these three things? Why is he so compelled to talk about speech and sex and, and covetousness? Why do these things matter? Why are they more important? Isn't there, isn't there worse things we could do? Couldn't, couldn't, be, couldn't he be just dealing with murder and stealing? That's really hurting people, right? I mean, sex between consenting adults, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? Why does it matter? Why does it matter what I desire most? Why does it matter what comes out of my mouth? Why is it important? I told you I was coming back to this point. God's beloved children are expected to live holy because we have been made holy by the one who is holy. You, brothers and sisters, we are being made in the image of God. His image is being restored in us. He is able to be seen in us. We are His people. He calls us His beloved children. It's time that we quit playing church and start being the church. There's no room for this stuff anymore. You see, the reality is that what, what we do reveals what we believe. What we're doing, what we allow ourselves to, to, to be entertained by, the words we speak, they tell people what's in our hearts. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of him. You know where my foolish speech came from? My crude joking. From a desire to be liked and approved. A covetous, idolatrous desire. You know where desires for things other than the Creator comes from? A lack of satisfaction with the only one we could find satisfaction in. You know why sex is such a big deal? Because it's the most intimate we can be with another person. And it was intended by God for us to use in such a way that in that moment, there the benefit and the, and, the, and the pleasure and the satisfaction of another is our paramount desire. It's as close as you can be to anyone. In fact, Paul talks about it as in that moment we are being made one. See, 
not to sexualize our relationship with the Father, but that's the intimacy. That's the intimacy He longs for with us. That moment where He is our paramount desire and we are His. And we are allowing it to be replaced by some physical satisfaction. God's beloved children are expected to live holy because we have been made holy by the One who is holy. And what we do reveals what we believe in our hearts. Now, I've been very direct and I've pushed on you. I'm going to pull back just a little bit. Not to, not to let us off the hook. We are called to pursue this lifestyle. This holy, pure lifestyle. But I don't want you walking out of here condemned and beaten down because you don't measure up. We don't measure up. That's why I'm so grateful for my Savior. See, that's why I want to gather with you and I want to sing. That's why I want to stand in this place and proclaim His goodness. That's why I want to travel to Africa so that others can hear it. Because there is no other hope. There is no other place in which our identity and our satisfaction can be met. But He tells us very clearly. He tells us very clearly. If your life, if you, are, if, if you find your identity in your sexual immorality, if you find your identity in the desires of your heart, if you find your identity in the, in, in, in the uh, obscene and coarse speech, if it is marked by that and, and there is no, no sense of guilt or no sense of conviction, if you're sitting here listening to me today and you don't recognize things as guilt or, or as sin and you're just t- saying, well, that guy is just old-fashioned, then you, you need to hear these words because it's these things that bring the wrath of God and that make His wrath justified. So if you can sit and you can hear these words and you don't have a sense that you need to flee from them, that you're just waiting till your next fix from them, you likely have never been saved. You've never been made holy. And today you need to hear this because you need to trust in Jesus. You need to fall on your face in front of Him as a sinner, confessing that you have no hope apart from Him and that His wrath against you is justified, but that you are leaning on Him and trusting in His work. He said it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. He stood in our place. He stood condemned so that when God looked at us, we could be righteous. He stood uh, uh, persecuted and and defeated and, and beaten and mocked and suffered in our place so that we could stand boldly in front of our Creator. If you're sitting in this room today and you have not sensed the sin that comes from our flesh, but would rather go your own way, then you need to hear this call because God's wrath is coming. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. For those of you that believe, in the elements of His Supper, the juice representing His blood and the bread representing His body. In those elements, we have a representation of where we find our great hope. 
where we find our acceptance, where we find forgiveness for our failures, where we can stand even though we recognize we still have flaws, where we can say we have been made holy, where we have been accepted and approved, where He has looked at us and said, You are a saint, where He has looked at us and said, You are my child. So much reason to celebrate. Great reasons to celebrate. And great reasons to go and live holy because He is holy. Let's pray.